Left Behind is a multimedia franchise that started with a series of 16 best-selling religious novels by Tim LaHaye and Jerry B. Jang by Tim LaHaye and Jerry B. Jang. Oh my God! Did you say that? future has come to pass. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of I Survive the Rapture. We're that podcast that examines the Left Behind novel series so you don't have to. I'm your lapsed evangelical Shane Bazell. And I'm your ecumenical fanboy, Gavin Russell. All right. We are at part three of book four, Soul Harvest, The World Takes Sides. So I'm happy to finish this one. I don't know about you. I, I'm liking it so far, but I know that in the first two parts, you were having a little bit of trouble. How you feeling now? In this section, the the slow pace kind of dies down a little. And in fact, this episode, we actually have the fewest pages to cover at the end of each Left Behind book. You got your big climactic moment that helps for like the holdover for the next book. That one's really cool in that. But again, leading up to it, like in Tribulation Force, it's a little bit of a bumpy ride. And there's a lot of stuff in here that's problematic. Oh my God. Mm. <laughs> we'll get to it. <laughs> yeah. So I, I agree with you. This goes at a really good clip. It's constantly cutting back and forth between characters. I would even say we get multiple climactic moments in this. Um, we get yes. some arcs that get wrapped up, some plot threads that get resolved in very intense ways and then lead directly into more crazy stuff. The weirdness turns up another knob by the end of this book. And I think that's cool, but laced all throughout it, like it has been through these previous books, is some stuff we're going to have to talk about. Yeah, there, there's one part in particular that when like all of the plot threads finally clicked, I'm like, oh, they they didn't just do that. Oh, my God. Yeah, they did. I should be used to that by now, uh, 12 episodes in. But, you know, uh, there's there's always new surprises that old Tim and Jerry throw at us. Yeah, I would think that at some point we're going to be numb to it. And I think maybe when we get to like the final quarter, we're probably going to hit stuff and be like, oh, OK, all right. We're a long way from there right now. I don't think we're fully really numb to it yet. You know what I mean? Yeah. All right. So let's go ahead and pick up where we left off. So we left off with the ultimatum given to Ray. Like, hey, you got to make sure that Zion Ben Judah gets to Israel. We will do a tremendous favor for you. That's about where we left off. So they've kind of got him under the gun and they're basically telling him that he Mm -hmm. has to go. The GC already has a lot of evidence on Ray about that he's not a team player. He is a believer. He's never made any secret of that. They also know that he has been somehow involved in aiding and abetting Zion Ben Judah, who is a fugitive. They just can't truly pin it on him yet. And he is worth more to them right now as an asset than as an enemy. So they're kind of keeping him around. Mm-hmm. Chapter 15 kind of opens with we're back at the safe house. And the safe house is going to become a come and go spot for a good portion of the rest of some of the books. I think at least for the next 
three. Beyond that, I can't recall, but I know for the next three that the safe house is going to be a big deal. And there are multiple safe houses, but the one we're currently occupying is the one we cleared out in part one, which is Donnie Moore's house near the Chicago area. Gotcha. So this is like our quest hub, like as you'd see in like a, a role-playing game, like the one town you always go back to to like regroup and sell your stuff. That That's what this little place is. Yes, totally. Um, and it's doubly reinforced because it has an identical shelter to what the church used to have. The church has been demolished. So Zion is hiding out in a shelter in Donnie's backyard. Mm-hmm. Buck actually wakes up to hear Chloe's phone ringing. And guess who's crying on the other end? It's no other than old Hattie Durham. Yep, Hattie's back in the mix, y'all. She is trying to reach out and contact from a reproductive clinic that she's at. We heard that in the letter last episode. But now she is actually taking her phone and trying to give Chloe a call. So it's clear that she trusts Chloe in a way that she doesn't trust, you know, other people in her life. Mm -hmm. We find out a few things. Uh, Hattie's family died in the earthquake. She's given the Santa Monica Global Community Cops her number and her location, which is going to start kind of a ticking clock here. Buck tells her, yeah, you probably shouldn't have done that because now they know where she is. And that's been the big whole thing. Where's Hattie? Where is she? The GC wants to find her. They can't find her. She does not want to go back to New Babylon at all. And she has nothing at this point. She has no job, no income, and no family. And so at this point, the tribulation force to her is like her only safe haven that she has left. Yes. We end this little section with Buck goes back and forth with her on the abortion thing. Like basically, please don't get an abortion. Please don't murder your child because they immediately go to that kind of hyperbolic language. It ends with Buck deciding, no, you're in danger. I'm going to come get you. Mm -hmm. So he's going to play hero again. And that's going to take us through a good portion of this section. A little funny moment that happens is because Chloe is in the room with Buck at this point and she wakes up and she's still like on a bunch of medication and she just goes, Hattie, Hattie has my bunny. Your bunny? Buck says in return, she goes, my blanket. And then she just goes back to sleep. Yeah, that was weird. Yeah. And that wasn't the only Chloe thing that was weird. Because now that Chloe's actually back in scenes with people, the weird, creepy Chloe lines are back. Do you have any from that section? That I don't have any specifically. I didn't highlight any or type any out. But man, they are constantly commenting on her appearance. It is Every time Chloe is referenced, it's how she looks, how she looked compared to the last time we saw her, how she looks compared to before she got injured. The fact that Buck still finds her hot just over and over and over again. And like, look, I'm nitpicking. I'm sure that I have other books that I like that write like this that I probably let slide. It just becomes so much more apparent when you know the point of view regarding gender and the relationships between men and women that these guys come from, you know? I get you. And so next we meet up with Mac and Rayford and they start talking a little bit more about Zion going to Israel. And they remark that you don't really have to like make him go because he's going to pretty much go himself. They also get into the magazine that Buck is planning on putting the internet, the whole Truth magazine uh, that he's going to be running concurrent with his global community work on the side. That gets them to realize that, oh, once this really hit, it's uh, we're going to be wanted fugitives and we won't be able to like interact with the global community much anymore. Buck says, before long, we'll all be just fugitives. Mm -hmm. That feeds into 
kind of that fantasy of being persecuted and being on the run for your beliefs that a lot of these evangelicals that cross over with like the prepper and second amendment types just love. Yeah. Like they eat this up. But during that conversation with Ray, they discuss that Zion is convinced that the 144,000 are protected by God. Now, I think we mentioned this in a prior episode, but I just want to hammer it home. The 144,000 in Revelation chapter 7, it is mentioned that the angels coming up that are given power to harm the earth as part of the judgments, which is the conclusion that Tim LaHaye is drawing, are protected from the judgments, that the 144,000 are protected. It does not say they are protected from outside forces, at least that I've been able to find in my research. But that is a conclusion that Zion, who at this moment is acting as the mouthpiece for LaHaye, draws. He basically says, oh, no, 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 the 144,000, we're like the witnesses. The forces of evil will not be able to come against us. I wasn't able to corroborate that in Revelation. As far as I know, it just says that they are kept safe from the four angels standing at the four corners of the earth who are given power to harm. Mm-hmm. Like if it is... I guess in LaHaye's context, God's will, they can still die, but they will be, they're going to go to heaven. I think what he's saying about specifically those 144,000 is that until a specific time, they cannot be killed. Okay. Okay. Gotcha. By the forces of the GC, they are safe. Like you cannot bring harm against us. For the rest of the believers who are also sealed, and we talked about the contradiction in that prior, Zion basically says, I don't know about you guys, but all of us 144,000 Jews, we're good. Okay. And it's kind of biblically inconsistent, at least from what I can see. So Buck messages Nikolai to say that he's going to keep the magazine running. He basically says, most everybody's dead in all of our offices and printing. I'm going to keep doing this, but it's going to have to be online. Mm Mm-hmm. And he's able to keep that up, which in this instance shows that the GC is still not really on to him for what he pulled with Chloe. They're still kind of looking for him for the Zion thing, but his luck is starting to run out. Mm -hmm. And it's not clear whether Nikolai's keeping him on as a matter of convenience or just to give him an upper rope to hang himself, you know, Mm -hmm. but he lets that continue to happen. We get a little update from Zion that he is receiving thousands of messages, more coming in all the time, but he specifically gets a message from, quote, one who knows. Yeah, that that was a weird one. I have it right here. Rabbi, it is only fair to tell you that one person who has been assigned to carefully monitor all your transmissions is the top military advisor for the global community. That may not mean much to you but he is particularly interested in your interpretation of the prophecies about things falling to the earth and causing great damage in the upcoming months. The fact that you take these prophecies literally has him working on nuclear defenses against such catastrophes. Signed, one who knows. Nikolai's going to shoot the judgments with missiles. (laughs) And I saw that. I was just like, yeah. He's just like, all right, so... We got a meteor coming towards Earth that might be from God. All right, let's just shoot nukes at it. <laughs> yep, I'm gonna send uh, Bruce Willis and all them up there to put a nuke at its core. Watch the nukes. <laughs> <laughs> so for real, like I, I love that that he's gonna, he's yeah. gonna shoot him with missiles. The first time I thought about like, okay, Carpathia going to like Acme levels of absurdity to try to stop. So as I thought he was gonna try to nuke like Eli and Moisha. So this is on flavor. We've still got where- time for that. Oh, yeah. But this is on flavor of where I I thought Nikolai's mania would take him. 
Wake up in the morning, straighten his tie, comb his hair, shoot nukes at God. That's my guy. Attack and dethrone God. Attack and dethrone God. That's uh, that's Nikolai's current quest in his quest log. That's my man. So we have a little conversation that is not really important to the plot because they're going to constantly be talking about Zion and going to Israel and who's going to go with them. But I wrote this down. Because they're having the conversation and Chloe is in the room and she is still on the mend from everything that happened to her during the quake. And she is saying, hey, I want to go to Israel too. And Buck immediately goes, basically, yeah, no, you will do no such thing. They have kind of a little back and forth bickering session. And there's a line in there. He thought Chloe being headstrong was just a 22-year-old's bout with political correctness. Oh God, Shut yeah, up. Shut up. Shut up forever. I don't like this. Chloe gets mad at one point. She's like, well, if you two chauvinists will excuse me, I want to try to talk to Hattie again. So at least Chloe stands up a little bit to it. But Yeah, uh, she constantly refers to herself as the little woman in a sardonic kind of way, which like, good for her. Don't let the guys in the room shout you down. Like, that's bullshit. But she also says to Buck, I have no problem submitting to you. I have no problem obeying you, even when you're wrong. Uh, Ezra, okay, ew. Yeah. Like, that's awful, man. Like, come on. I don't know if you've experienced this, but this is a thing in evangelicalism. The man is the head of the household. We talked about all this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they will continue to use words like obedience and submission, even when they don't really mean them. Like, it's very clear that Chloe's going to do what she wants. Yeah. She is not going to submit to Buck. She's not going to obey Buck. She's not. And I think that that's to her credit. But the continuing insistence on using those words, I just think is gross. Yeah, I I think so as well. Like holding that up as a virtue, you know, get out of here. Because mm-hmm. I have seen, especially from LaHaye's generation, like th- that is something that like hasn't really gotten dismantled or like put down. And that's still a thing that they hold on to like for dear life. Like they don't want to try to see it through any other perspective. And it's very strange. You want to what? Even though it's that kind of father knows best, leave it to beaver, sort of 1950s sitcom kind of morality, I'm going to point something out. Okay. Almost immediately toward the end of the 50s, and I'm only saying this because we've been watching WandaVision, the media changed to have more assertive roles by the wife in the media. Now, was it perfect? No. But there's definitely a very big difference with Mary Tyler Moore in the Dick Van Dyke show and how she interacts with her husband than something like the June Cleaver on Leave It to Beaver. Yeah. Of course, I am way too young to be making either of those references. Ask your parents (laughs) or watch WandaVision. But you know what I mean? Like, even their media that they kind of hold so dear is sort of the good old days that we need to go back to where men were men and women knew their place. Even then, like, the women in the media didn't, quote, know their place, you know? Yeah. Just, get out of here with that. We get a real quick interlude with Ray that he's making plans to fly back to Chicago to see the force because he's actually flying around the States right now, hobnobbing with dignitaries with Leon. We get a quick little fanfare when, or hold on, let me go his full title since that's been uh, a thing. You will address him by his full title, Mr. Russell. Enigma Babylon, one world faith leader, Pontifex Maximus Peter II. He comes in, everyone gives him his big to-do, and then we go back to Ray. He has this big uh, fanfare because Matthews refuses to go on stage until, like, Uh, He is announced by his full proper title. Oh, I forgot to write that down. Yeah. Yeah. This boy is King Diva. They say Supreme Pontiff of Enigma Babylon One World Faith, and that's that's not enough for him. He needs his new updated title. And I, I kind of like this 
And you're going to see it more in later books that everybody in the GC bureaucracy are just the most petty. Yeah. They are so petty. They are so obsessed with their own egos and titles. And that's kind of shown as a fault for them that they are obsessed with procedure and their titles and their own advancement and egos. Whereas the Tribulation Force all stick together and they're, you know, salt of the earth and cool. That's going to feed into some of the narrative I'm going to talk about later. Ah, okay, gotcha. We get one more cutback to the safe house. Ken comes over and says hi to everybody. Inexplicably, Ken is dressing and acting like a cowboy, like full (laughs) tilt. He's wearing cowboy boots, cowboy hat, flannel shirt. Howdy, ma'am. I don't know why. He just is like, man, you're from Chicago. What are you doing? But there's something else about Ken that's a little different. Is he pregnant too? (laughs) That is the line. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So Ken pulls the hair back from in front of his forehead and basically does like a, huh? Huh? What do you think? I, I got the, I got the marker. <laughs> why, why did I go down? Yes, Ken is now on Team Tribulation Force. He said the prayer. He's done the thing. He is now saved, and he's part of the family. Yeah. And that's going to take us into Chapter 16. Rayford has to call the Supreme Commander at a number, and they request that he's going to fly to Denver today to be able to pick up Hattie at an abortion clinic in Denver. And so so that's his assignment for the day that he gets rerouted on. Yep. So that will be a major part of this section. Yep, you are going to Denver, my boy, because they have found her. Buck was right. They used the information that she gave the Santa Monica police to track her down. The GC personnel are currently stalling her at that clinic. So the clock is ticking even faster. Hattie does not have much time. Yeah. So back to the safe house. Cyan actually prays over Ken, thanking God for his conversion. This is a thing. I don't know if you ever experienced this, but sort of the group prayer around a new believer, Mm -hmm. especially at church camp and stuff like that. We would gather around somebody who had come to Christ for the first time and sort of pray over them and be like, God, thanks for getting us another one. (laughs) Way more eloquent than that. That was some good praying. Uh, You see, he says that he's talking like a cowboy now. (laughs) Don't you understand when you become a Christian, you you get to pick a subclass and Ken pick cowboy as his subclass. Yes. And it comes with a pickup truck. Pickup truck and his hat that he pulls down over his eyes when he starts crying. Yes. uh, Because of how good the prayer was. And then Zion gives him a paperback book called How to Begin the Christian Life. And he he wants Zion to sign it. And Zion's like, I, I didn't write this book, but I think it will help you. Uh, it's just Tim projecting from all of the conferences he does and how people ask him to sign things all the time. In case you guys didn't know, Tim LaHaye during his life would travel around to churches all over the place and do prophecy conferences. And he would set up like a merch table and stuff. And people would have long, long lines asking him for his autograph. Mm-hmm. They also make a point that so many members of the Tribulation Force are pilots, and I just wrote so many pilots. This is a plane book. It's about planes and people who fly planes, the, the big planes and the big tough men that fly these planes. This just came to me. If you're reading this book in an airport and you're like on the fence about faith, you'll probably get a lot of like weird signal because like, oh, I want to talk about this just for a little second. Go ahead. So people that are questioning their faith and say that they travel a lot, if they just picked up this book in an airport because they were bored, I, I just realized they might start drinking some synchronicity Kool-Aid and going like, man, the main character of this book was a pilot. And I saw a pilot with like a cross necklace on. I just, I think God's talking to me. Oh, totally. And I don't think they planned that. Clearly, we, we know we know what they say the origin story for this book was. I think they might have tripped and fallen into that. Mm-hmm. 
you know, at the airports that I went to when I was younger, I remember these being like on standees out in front of the bookstore. Really? Oh, yeah. Did you see many people like reading these at the airport? Do you remember oh, anything man, like I that? I saw people read these at the airport. I saw people read these like at the bookstore, at the Christian bookstore, at basketball games, all over the place. People were reading these. Everybody had them in their house. It was a genuine phenomenon. Like we talked about that in their episode zero. Mm-hmm. I saw them all over the place. Now, there's a weird wording in this line. Buck and Ken are going to make the flight to go get Hattie. So we got Ray going to get Hattie and Buck and Ken going to get Hattie. And it's a matter of which of them is going to get there first. Zion says God's speed instead of Godspeed. Wait, who says this? I think it's Zion that says God's speed. Huh. You see that like in not there? With the, not, maybe, maybe they missed an apostrophe. The reader on the audiobook very specifically says God's speed. Huh. It's weird. So much more talking about Chloe's appearance, too. Like, they go back to it again in this section. They're just like, yeah, she uh, she looked good. They also make a lot of references to the fact she's pregnant. I mean, okay, she she is pregnant, but that's, like, the main thing on appearance. Like, everyone's got a comment on the baby bump. Uh, that bit. gets worse. Oh, God. Just going to warn you, it gets worse. And I did not realize how bad it was until Alex called it out while I was listening to book five. So, stay tuned. Oh, man. It gets worse. I wrote in the margins, all goodwill I had for Buck and Chloe's relationship earlier in this book is gone again. (laughs) Because he's being weird again. Yeah. The way that they write this instantly goes from like, oh man, husband and wife, aren't they sweet together? To this is a 30-something-year-old with a 22-year-old and boy, is he weird about it. For most of this book, we haven't even really heard from Chloe. And it was like, you know, the whole damsel in distress thing where he has to save her. So we didn't get much like interactions with her. So it's been kind of light for the first part. But now that they're back together, like, oh, I remember how much I hate these two being in a room with one another. Yeah, it's awful. Not quite Tribulation Force awful, but still This bad. is like a remix a little bit. Yeah, we're still getting it in there. We know Ray is planning to spring Hattie, but he's having second thoughts. He says this whole thing is squirrely. So he gives Buck a call. They have a little bit of a conversation back and forth, just a little planning sesh. It's decided that Buck is going to try to get to Hattie before the GC goons can. At the end of that conversation, Mac calls Ray inexplicably using code names and is like, hey, we got to meet in secret. Mm-hmm. So Mac knows something is up. So he's going yeah. to delay Ray. And now that he's had his strategy session with Buck and Mac and Ray are going to meet in secret. Gotcha. Yeah. Buck and Ken land in Denver. They still don't know quite where Hattie is yet, but they are trying to figure it out. Zion has been nonstop posting, as we've said before, and he finally gets his next big post, which is a call to arms on the internet. And he goes through like, hey, the great earthquake has killed one fourth of the people. This is definitely an act of God, like I predicted. He starts going into like the marvels of technology for a minute, going like, hey, just how beautiful is it that We can talk like this on the internet and how anyone could see anything that's going on in the world. Then he's just like, but there's a dark side to it. And Zion starts boomer posting pretty hard (laughs) because he, at one point, he's just like, I've seen the most utterly evil things, vile language, lascivious images. I've seen naked people on TV. Every deadly sin is on screen. He goes on like this for a minute. 
Yeah, like this is pages. Uh, like just on media, it's about three pages worth of stuff. Yeah, dude, he goes on and on and on. He starts talking about how there's sorcery and black magic being offered on TV as alternative forms of spirituality. I'm sorry. I lived through the 90s, and I guess except for, like, Miss Cleo, I didn't get, like, infomercials on how to buy magic crystals or summon demons. But I did have Pokemon and Yu-Gi-Oh!, which to hear some of the folks at my church talk might as well be the same thing. Oh, man. I, I think I've told the Yu-Gi-Oh! story. <laughs> you on, have. On it's before. so good. <laughs> Those cards have power. You're correct. They do. If you believe the in the heart, heart of the cards. cards. <laughs> Okay. It's, it's so good. You, I just, you can go back in time and do it over again. So he does his boomer posting, but he also starts talking about all kinds of wild shit. Ray begins his session of reading Zion's message by saying he really likes Zion because he has the ability to put the cookies on the lower shelf. What does that mean? So what it means is that he has the ability to convey the message of Christ in a way that is easy for people to understand. They don't have to reach for it to understand it. That's a hallmark of evangelicalism. Evangelicalism is a populist sect. It's a populist religion. It is designed for the quote-unquote common man. It's not hidden behind layers of clergy and scholarship and all of these languages that you have to learn, and you don't have to look at a priestly class necessarily to explain it all to you. The relationship with God is personal. This is all stuff that comes out of the Reformation and then the years after the Reformation and centuries of Protestantism. That is also something that, in my opinion, looking as kind of now and used to be an insider is now an outsider. That is actually something that gets kind of dangerous with evangelicalism is that because everything coming from God becomes personal, agendas get shoved into it very easily. Not to say that agendas don't exist in religions all over the place. Political agendas and religion are inextricably tied. Whenever you have a religious framework, it's very it's very hard in some religions to separate the political from the religious, but just because of how much the two mesh together. Like I would say even within liberal Christianity, that's a degree because like a lot of the beliefs that you are picking and choosing that you want to have in your religious framework are a little bit politically minded. You want to have your secular stuff and your religious stuff match up so there's not much cognitive dissonance. Right. There. I feel to a degree it's unavoidable. It's just not when you're not actively trying to recognize that that's what you're doing. It gets a little bit dangerous. I think you're right. And I think that it's unavoidable, like you said, because both religion and politics involve people. And when mm -hmm. people are getting together, politics is nothing if not the interactions between people and how those things are organized. When we talk about agendas and things like that, this is a passage that it's very clear that he's just using Zion as a mouthpiece for his own agenda. And by he, I mean LaHaye. Yeah. It's very obvious that Boomer LaHaye is the one talking here. I think Jenkins is closer to like an early Xer, maybe just a late Boomer. But the things that he says here, the one world government is from the pit of hell. That ain't from the Bible. There is nothing about a one world government in the Bible. Not really. Now, if you're talking specifically about Revelation, maybe. He is referring to the morality of having a one world government to begin with being from the pit of hell. Uh, okay, buddy. And he's talking about, you know, Sodom and Gomorrah type stuff. I can only imagine what Tim LaHaye would have said were he alive to see Game of Thrones. 
Oh God. Yeah, Game of Thrones or pretty much anything on premium cable now that's not like Disney Plus. He would be absolutely horrified just one episode. Yep, but he'd also hate WandaVision because it's full of witchcraft. Teaching sorcery. Yep, we're teaching sorcery. He also goes on and critiques Enigma Babylon because it's sanctioned by global community itself does not believe in the one true God. It believes in any God or no God or God as a concept. There is no right or wrong. There is only relativism. The self is the center of this man-made religion and devoting to one's life to the glory of God stands in stark relief. And like the approach that Enigma Babylon is taking isn't the worst. When you begin to put a religious institution behind anything, you can get into queasy territory. But like, so far, Enigma Babylon really hasn't done anything wrong except bring a lot of people of differing beliefs together and figuring out how to make them communicate. So I don't know, that's kind of bugged me that any effort to try to do like big inter-religion ecumenicism is seen as like a bad thing. Yeah, and it is, and it's done by the book because they frame it as a grift mm-hmm. like enigma babylon is basically nothing but a personal enrichment grift for matthews yeah and even the bad guys point that out yeah exactly it is basically his little principality that he's running like a kingdom and it's all to just make him be a big shot because the the biggest cognate to enigma babylon i would say is the unitarian universalists and while i really like that sect just because of like how it does try to bring a lot of beliefs together it it does start to i would say get a little bit messy when it starts interface stuff with like making money and it becomes like a big grift at that point and gets a little bit uh yeah some parts yeah and so he goes back to like the cult of tolerance and how we shouldn't tolerate certain things and i agree with you there are certain things that shouldn't be tolerated You know, there's a philosophical basis for things that you don't tolerate. However, when it's somebody's belief that's different from yours, that isn't hurting anybody, shut up. Right. I get it. That puts me on the bad guy side. I am literally spouting talking points some GC goon would probably say. But remember, we are not in this fictional universe. Yeah. And also the GC and Enigma Babylon are like these straw men to try to characterize people of our ideological background and try to be like, see, they're like, they're evil. See, they're bad in this story that I wrote about them. So it must be true. Exactly. (laughs) They're bad. A couple more things that stand out in Zion's message. He specifically says that God put natural disasters in the hands of the devil because he is the prince and power of the air in a fallen world. Uh, That's something I was taught growing up. How about you? Uh, kind of. It's more like the bad things in history had to happen, essentially. Unless natural disasters, but I've heard stuff like slavery be justified because of stuff like that. We were specifically taught that, you know, the principality of the air, the prince of the air, which is a kind of an esoteric name for Satan, was the reason why a lot of natural disasters happened. And he says in here, God allowed these disasters to happen because remember, God is supposed to be all powerful. So why doesn't he stop them? Mm -hmm. He allowed them to happen because of man's fall. I guess they needed to be taught a lesson every year or so. But he would intervene occasionally because people prayed. Yeah. Not a fan of that. Basically saying that the all-knowing God who has his perfect plan for the universe will just change it because people pray. That's a huge contradiction that I see in a lot of Christianity. And it's not the first time they're going to say something like this. 
we we mentioned the fall and I, I got a little fun fact today that I want to share on air because it made me kind of laugh. The Book of Jubilees gives a little bit of background for the fall of man. Now, what is what is the Book of Jubilees for those people who don't know? The Book of Jubilees is a part of the Eastern Orthodox canon in their Apocrypha. It states that Adam and Eve eating the fruit and God getting back to them like, hey, that you shouldn't have done that. You need to get out of the garden. That was months apart. So God just left Adam and Eve like just stewing an existential knowledge flooding in for like a few months while they're like sewing together fig leaf clothes and like freaking out. God, God just, just left them on red. Yeah. <laughs> and then finally God was like, no phone, who dis? <laughs> and finally God just goes, oh man, I'm sorry. I just saw this. Are you guys <laughs> just okay? Just saw this. Uh, you got to get out. So did you catch the liar, lunatic, or lord bit? Yes, in there? I did. I did. <laughs> the trilateral uh, dilemma, but here on I Survived the Rapture, we we have the quadrilateral dilemma. Yeah, exactly. And you'll have to listen to previous episodes to hear me go off about that. I, and I did write that Enigma Babylon is reductionist in the extreme. Yeah. Like you said, they're writing caricatures of people like us to basically say these are the bad guys. He ends by saying, time to choose sides. If one is right, the other is wrong. We can't both be right. And I wrote under that, yes, but you can both be wrong. Yeah. (laughs) And that's one of those things that bugs me is that we were taught all the time growing up in church, we are on the right side, they are on the wrong side, they being anyone who's not us. Yeah. And one cannot be right if the other one is wrong. That's one of like the intro lines that they give you to like, hey, don't you want to be on the winning side? Like there's a war going on. So you want to like, be on the side of the people that you know of like are going to win, right? Yes, pluralism is bad. But the thing that I never considered is yes, but they could also both be wrong. Mm-hmm. And then it ends with a citation from a man named Jim Elliot. Gavin, do you know who Jim Elliot is? Reading this book is the first time I heard his name. So Jim Elliot was a figure that got brought up a lot when we were talking about missionaries. Now, you guys have heard me wax on about the missions focus of my denomination growing up and how big missionaries were almost like celebrities. The work that they did, the sacrifices that they made. Jim Elliot was one of those martyrs for the cause, specifically of missions that got trotted out very frequently. And I'm going to give you a very, very abbreviated version of his story. He has had a movie made about him that was released in theaters. So Philip James Elliot, known as Jim, according to his Wikipedia page, was an American Christian missionary, one of five people killed during an attempt to evangelize the Huarani people of Ecuador. The short version of Jim Elliott's story is that he was a missionary who, along with four other guys, went into a remote part of Ecuador, which was inhabited by a small tribe that was not in contact with much of the rest of the outside world in an attempt to evangelize them. I think that they went in on a small plane and they tried to make contact a few times before. Their mission was to go in, witness to these people, try to make contact with them and share the gospel with them. Mm -hmm. The specifics are largely unknown. However, they were killed by this tribe of people. We have seen this happen before. And in fact, I think it's happened once pretty recently on the Sentinelese Island, right? I believe so, yeah. Remember that happening? 
Yeah, I remember that. I don't have the exact dates on that, but it is a story of someone goes into a remote part of the world, a community of people that, you know, do not have contact and they are met with violence. The ins and outs of all of that aside, Jim Elliott is looked at as a martyr. Now, there is a big part of me that sees a lot of that kind of missionary work and that kind of evangelism as diet colonialism. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's me. That's my feeling on it. I would agree with you on that just because like a lot of it is aid focused, but there's always like it's very much like a mental colonization thing where you're trying to instill ideas from your culture into others to try to like put your status quo into their culture as well. So it can get kind of harmful, especially when a lot of people don't really do it from the mindset of giving aid, if that makes sense. And a lot of times it's aid with strings. Yeah. And we see this in a lot of mission work. In a lot of cases with people like that, I want to believe people have the best of intentions, but I'm just going to say, leave them alone, man. Yeah. Like just leave people alone. They did not ask for you to come to them. They did not ask you to bother them. But he is held up as a martyr. And the fact that that is the case is kind of icky because I wouldn't necessarily call him a martyr. He was not murdered for his faith. But the fact that he is played off as a martyr or he is brought up as a martyr did not sit right with me. And I think it's probably pretty clear why. Now, there was a movie made about him. I think it's called End of the Spear. Oh. It also is a, an extremely glowing, glorifying depiction of both his life and his tragic death. Yeah. You can take from that what you will and kind of how you feel about him as a figure. He's, he's an interesting figure, at least. But Zion ends with a quote from Jim Elliott. You want to read that quote real quick? He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep, this temporal life, to gain what he cannot lose, eternal life with Christ. I think the guy was probably well-intentioned, especially if you truly believe that people who have not heard the gospel and have not converted are facing eternity in hell. I do not agree with what he did. I don't think that killing people is okay either. It is way more of a complex situation that I think that the Christian narrative that has sprung up around Jim Elliott allows for the conversation to happen. You know what I mean? Not sure of like what the entirety of the dialogue that they give people to go out and go on mission trips, but some of the discussions around it I have heard is like, oh, well, everyone on earth will get an opportunity to hear about Jesus before they die. Not true. Well, yeah, but... Uh, like, literally impossible. They're very against the idea that that someone won't get a chance, so that's how they kind of put you in. It's like, oh, you have to be, like, the actual voice and the actual conduit to bring this information over to them. And so that's some of the selling points that especially younger people that are getting into mission work, they'll throw at you. We need to interview some people that have gone on missions. I know a few in the local community that we can hit up. Can interview my sisters. Oh, heck yeah. Uh, Look here, fella. God wants to tell him so bad he can come down and tell him himself. (laughs) Sorry. So that takes me out of, you know, my long-winded meandering rant over. Sorry. You're all good. So Sad Ray thinks a little bit about Amanda. Oh, man, I hope she's alive. I know she's alive. I know she is. And then we kind of cut back to the Buck situation. They know that the GC is kind of pulling a fast one and trying to sponsor Zion's return to Israel now because Nikolai's going to be magnanimous to be like, oh, you guys love this Ben Judah guy. Tell you what, I already rescued him. I'll give you my personal guarantee that he's going to be returned to his homeland safely to do the work that is so important to all of you. Uh. <laughs> Just 
<laughs> but hey, gotta hand it to my boy. He knows how to spin. Yeah. There's another line that comes up, and I don't remember who says it, that Matthews and Enigma Babylon will only last so long. Well, Zion says that. The Bible teaches that Matthews will only last so long. And then the phone rings and it's Chloe. So I'm going to need to look into that because I don't recall much of Revelation having specifics on the, quote, false religion and things like that. There is the figure of the false prophet, which there's a lot more to that figure than we have currently examined because there's Matthews and some other stuff. And I'm just going to leave it there. Oh, okay. We are not done with the figure of the false prophet or with the saga of the false prophet. When we look at the triumvirate, of evil that's presented revelation which is the beast the dragon and the false prophet and then you can almost throw the whore of babylon into that as well as kind of a a fourth member a rhythm guitarist for the group of evil Mm -hmm. the dragon being satan the beast being the figure of the antichrist and the false prophet being another figure there the way that lahey decides to interpret that role kind of goes through a metamorphosis throughout the book and that's all i'm going to say about that for right now I, ooh, I'm excited. I had a listener bring up something that I'd said when I referred to Matthews as the false prophet in that role, and it's a little more complicated than that. He did correct me. Ah, okay. So we have some super fans in the audience as well. Yeah, we do. So we find out Hattie's at a clinic that used to be a church and was sold off by Enigma Babylon because remember, they were trying to get rid of all those churches. Mm -hmm. What am I going to do with all these churches? We'll make them into abortion clinics. Isn't that like the biggest evil that you could possibly do? Yeah, <laughs> like a right-wing evangelical. We're going to take your church and turn it into an abortion clinic. That sounds like a Fox News scare line. Yeah, like, yeah. Take like all the we, churches I, and turn them into abortion clinics. This is the no-spin zone. Oh, bro, it gets worse. It's an abortion clinic where they do cloning and fetal tissue research. Ooh. <laughs> oh, my God, it's so scary. We're just getting into the realizations that, like, so many things are just absolute straw man of scenarios. That, like, oh, God. Like, because once we get to this clinic, it gets wild. Oh, God. Dude, they're really playing the greatest hits of right-wing paranoia. Oh, not only are they aborting the babies, they're cloning them, and then they're ripping them up and, and doing weird science with them. In a church! In a church! They'll, they'll eat our women and take our jobs! Oh, my God. It's so bad. I am living for that, the fact that that's in there. So Chloe does a little lying and bribing, you know, just some bog standard lying and bribing to find out about Hattie, whether she's in there and actually gets a list of names of some of the women who have checked in, finds out that, hey, you're not going to have a hard time finding the alias that Hattie's using. And then goes down a list of like Hispanic names and Asian names (laughs) and is like the only like, what is it, Mary Jones or something like that? Like a very generic sounding name. Yeah. And like, it just felt weirdly racist. Yeah, it did. It did for me as well. Like this whole entire section gets like just just a little bit. Not only is she the only white girl there, according to this list, it's like, oh, you'll know her because she's white. Oh, God. Oh, it's real bad. Like, I don't even know if they meant to do that. I think that these are just some of the author's implicit biases coming in, which we know those are gross. And then we find out what Mac wanted to talk to Ray about. Mac secretly recorded Leon having a little convo with Nikolai. 
they're going to try to ice Hattie and Ray at the same time when Ray goes to pick her up in Denver. That just builds upon the absurdity of this vignette because not only is this taking place at the abortion clinic, underground science lab, church, but it's also we're doing an assassination there. This (laughs) is ridiculous. Because this is the point where, like, I was just like, oh, no, is like the first, like, battle that the Tribulation Force has to have. We've technically had one with the Desert Bus episode, but this uh, gets into the first, I guess, battle of the war. So to they speak. are truly targeting and trying to kill us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there was just something weird that it was like, they're seriously doing an abortion clinic. Like, that was kind of like my point of no return of, oh, boy, here we go. I'm going to make an observation. You made a good point talking about all of the weird confluence of scary things to evangelical right-wingers about this place. Almost like the creepy circle room in the United Nations that we had at the end of book one. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's happening in the United Nations. There's devil mind control. There's new world order. There's international finance stuff. And there's a murder. That's kind of something that evangelicals tend to dig is like places with bad energy. They would never say it that way. I can kind of see that. It's almost like places that you shouldn't go. They kind of believe in that. And again, they probably wouldn't even put it together or recognize it themselves, but it's a thing. Like this house is bad. You know, it kind of feeds into like a lot of their superstitions against like other religions sometimes, too. It's strange, like, oh, there was a coven that lived here and now the the entire energy is bad. If you go there, there's there's demonic influence. Oh, yeah. And it's every Christian mom that freaked out that like a clothing store had a dream catcher on their wall. Yeah, yeah. that That's kind of the energy of it. They're they're dark side. Totally. But this is cranked up, obviously, past 11. Like, they broke mm-hmm. the knob off, as we've talked about. But but it's same energy. Oh, have you seen that episode of Life Swap? The ultra-Christian lady gets like... Have I seen the God Warrior episode of Wife Swap, buddy? That is one of my go-to watches when I am imbibing certain substances. <laughs> Dark-sided! All of them! Dark-sided! <laughs> <laughs> We got to link that in the, the episode if anyone hasn't seen Y'all, it. if you haven't seen the God Warrior episode of Wife Swap, do yourself a favor. It is a delight to the eyes and ears and the soul. That's all I'm going to tell you. It, it's a meme. A lot of people know this one, but please watch it. We'll just put a YouTube link up. It's still good. We'll put it up tonight. I don't care. Gotcha. It's so good. So now we get into chapter 17. It is action scene time, boys. We start out with Buck coming in. He's like, I'm here to see Mary. So the imagery there, we're already on is some interesting levels. He's here to see the pregnant lady named Mary. The pregnant lady who is bearing the child of the Antichrist and her name is Mary. Did not put that together. Thank you, Gavin. That's weird. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and he gives the alias and it's the wrong name. Yeah. The, the Asian lady that they keep referring to. Like, she's actually Mary. They even make another weirdly kind of racist remark. They're like, well, she didn't look like a Mary Thompson or whatever. Like, come on, oh. man. Ugh. A lot of stuff is happening at once. So we'll try to breeze through this and get the high points of the action and what happens because this is a pretty intense scene. Mm-hmm. So Ray calls Buck, tries to warn him, gets Ken. While Ken is on the phone with Ray, Buck is inside the clinic trying to schmooze his way past another healthcare worker. And she goes, hey, by the way, whoa, 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 sir, sir, sir. You 
wouldn't happen to be Rayford Steele, would you? Ken's like, hey, I think there might be something going on with the car. <laughs> yep, so Ken's lanky ass just sort of like busts in around that same time. And I think Buck actually says, yes, yes, I am Rayford Steele because Ray is who they're looking for and Buck doesn't know it yet. And Ken is like trying to warn him. Yeah. And they takes him back out to the car and he's trying to get him briefed on what's going on. And the keys are missing. Oh no. Because a GC security officer is just sitting there spinning the keys on his finger. Like your lights were on. We were going to bring you the keys. Gets real ominous real fast. So the goon squad is here. Oh yeah. And they are ready. Yeah. And this is not the B team goon squad we met in the last hospital. These guys mean business. They're like, Captain Steele, we have your cargo inside. Sir, you won't be necessary. Oh. And looks at Ken and is just like dismisses him. Oh, man. They cut away from this. We have to cut back to a Ray portion. They are almost to the Tigress, I believe. We find out what he said to Ken before he hung up. Oh, yeah. Ray realizes he's burned. These people are here to kill him. And he says my favorite line, if you can find it. He says, these people have unlimited weapons. <laughs> Unlimited money, unlimited weapons, unlimited everything, but we have God. What does unlimited weapons mean? I, I don't know. It's, it's a bad line and I love it. <laughs> Dude, it's so silly. So Ken gets out of the car, straps on his Beretta. Now, you may have heard me say in a previous episode, Ken Ritz is a violent man. Yeah. And I said that was foreshadowing. This is what I was referring to, and we're going to see that come by a little bit later. The guards walk Buck into the room to fetch Hattie. Hattie's weirdly groggy, and she's like, I don't want to go. I don't want to go back to New Babylon. She's like, well, Captain Steele's here to pick you up. Hattie's able to play it cool. Like, obviously, it's not Ray. She knows it's Buck, and she plays it cool, and she's like, can you guys give me a minute to go get dressed? And she goes into the bathroom. Mm -hmm. Ken comes in dressed as a janitor, standing next to the other janitor, so it's like two janitors, like, pushing a broom down the hallway. It's real weird. The same janitor that Chloe bribed previously, and the GC guard starts making small talk with Buck and kind of plays his hand. He says they're going to go to the Dulles airport, which has been destroyed. So Buck's like, they're not taking me anywhere. Uh, We're in a lot of trouble. And that's about the moment that goes down. Yeah, the global community guys start pulling out their Uzis specifically and just start banging on the door trying to get Hattie to come out. The older one shoots Hattie's door four times, blowing the latch and lock off and causing everyone in the, the, the facility to start kind of freaking out. The guards blast open the door only to find, and it's almost like a scene out of a movie, the door to the bathroom is open, but so is the window and the curtains are like flapping in the breeze. So Hattie, pregnant Hattie, bolted out the window. Okay. Yeah. She is now running toward the car where Ken is. Buck turns around to the GC guards, one of whom is in the hallway, one is in the room. The receptionist hears the gunfire, starts running around her desk to get into the hallway. The guard in the hallway blasts the shit out of her. Mm -hmm. They say unleashed a fusillade, which I had to Google what a fusillade was. It just means like a burst yeah. from a machine gun. Tears this woman in half. Oh my. Like they say from waist to face, just murders this receptionist. And Buck freezes. And he's like, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. Oh no. Something that I called out in the very first book of Kung Fu Buck kicks in and Buck one punches <laughs> this dude in the face. 
And they vividly describe the cartilage and the bone breaking and shattering. It punches him so hard that it basically leaves a fist print in his face. The guy goes back, hits his head on the floor, and is done. So Buck literally one punch man's a guy, and that is the... Did you play Mortal Kombat 9? <laughs> Or like 10 or any of the recent Mortal Kombat. Um, have you seen any of the clips of them where they do the x-ray yeah, punches? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's that. Like slow motion, like you get to see the bones crack and everything. Yes, he one punch man Saitama's this dude in the face. Uh, the dude goes down. And so Buck, like you said, no training, bolts. Uh, after he just absolutely obliterates this one guy, not knowing his own strength, first blood of this this encounter, he, he runs into the room and sees like a young woman trembling and he just goes, lock that door and stare in the bed. Now or you'll die. And then she goes under the bed and he goes out through the window and falls into some bushes. The last thing he has to do is just get to the sedan where Ken Ritz is. And the guard is hot on his heels and starts shooting at him. So this is not the first time Buck Williams has been shot at. Yeah. But there's never a time where you like getting shot at. Buck takes cover behind the global community van that's kind of between him and the getaway car. Ken's got the motor running. He has to kind of make the choice of like, okay, do I hunker down or do I bolt? So he decides to bolt. He makes it there. It's a very heart-pounding moment. And Ken just squeals away. The guard jumps into the van and Buck can't see what he's doing. And then we cut back to Ray because they love teasing us like this. They'll stop right in the middle of an action scene and cut back to somebody else. Ray's calling Buck over and over and over again. He's standing on this runway in Kansas where he met Mac because he knows he can't go anywhere right now. And he prays specifically, God, let me be Carpathia's out and out enemy, please. Finally, he gets through to Hattie. Ritz and Hattie update him. They're like, we're getting shot at. And then we find out the guard gets out of the van again and starts firing. And then what happens? Ken, after Buck has killed a man, Ken's like, oh man, I, I have to bump up my KDR as well. And he goes, no way. This guy is mine. Ritz fires a few shots at a guard, hits him in the foot sending him flying backwards. And he just goes, I'll kill you. I kill you, you. And then Buck ran from the car and grabs Ritz and Dragon's like, dude, like no way he's alone. Just get in the car. We've got to go. Ken Ritz doesn't get to kill anybody, but he almost did. He wanted to really bad. Oh yeah. He goes into like a full, like three point stance and is shooting to kill this guy. Yeah. So like I said, Ken is a violent man. Might say he's a man who lives by the sword. Not exactly an angel in his former life. So they get in the car. Ken floors it. It's a whole escapade. One of the tires is blown out. They're leaking gas. They find out why the GC guard got into the van and then back out of the van because the van wouldn't start. And Ken just kind of waves the distributor cap from the van. So again, Kenrit's not exactly an angel. And it seems like they're going to get away. And then we cut Back to Ray and Mac again. They come up with a cover story to Leon saying, oh, we can't get back. The training jet malfunctioned. So looks like we're going to be a little late going to Denver. So there's Ray's alibi because the GC still thinks that's Rayford that went and rescued Hattie. Yeah. So they're speeding away from the incident. No one's really pursuing them, but they're trying to get to the airport as fast as possible as the car begins to overheat Sparks and flames are flying up from the flat tire and they're leaking gas. <laughs> Hattie is very much concerned and she goes, what if the tire burns up the car anyway? And Rich just goes, 
hope you're right with God. And Buck's like, yeah, you took the word dry out of my mouth. So Patty, from their point of view, better make a choice real fast is what they're saying. This is not the last time that we will see a character confronted with that kind of a choice. Yeah, I I, I had a... The calling to conversion during an action scene is a big thing. Now, it's important to mention that Hattie doesn't take him up on it. Yeah. She's a little busy trying to keep herself and her baby safe, honestly. and right after that, the scene shifts again with Rayford and Mac rocketing towards Dallas. Cut back, and Buck is... Just hoping that the car runs out of gas soon, but he doesn't know how they would transport Hattie across the ground after it does. Buck's just like, keep the car going, keep the car going. Eventually, they get to the airport, and very quickly, they go out of the flaming car, and like a airport crew comes in and snuffs out the fire with foam as they're running towards a Learjet. And Ken, within a minute, gets the Learjet off the ground and takes off. So they have successfully... Yep, just leaves them there. Just doesn't check in, doesn't wait for clearance. Just yeah, jumps. well, I think uh, right before they do that, they actually do, like, warn the tower real quick. So, like, all of the the checking in happened, like, slightly before they got to the airport. In the burning car. <laughs> uh, that's a trope that has happened twice now. Going directly from a burning or about to be on fire vehicle to a plane. That that has now happened twice in both of the major uh, uh, battle scenes in the series. Welcome to I Survived the Rapture, a podcast about problematic books involving Jesus and planes. <laughs> So they get in the air. Buck is extremely traumatized. Like yeah. he's worried that he has just killed a man. He's he, not sure. He witnessed the receptionist. Um, we're gonna die. find out later what happened. Yep, he watched the receptionist die. They kind of debrief with each other. Find out not only did Hattie give her information, they were also stealing info off of her phone. Oh no! Again, technology is evil. They're going to be making their way back to the safe house with Hattie in tow. They now have someone that they can call on to provide her medical care. So they have Floyd, and they're going to be putting Floyd over her medical care. Oh, man. And that takes us into Chapter 18. So right before they get to Dallas, Rayford is trying to figure out what Leon knew or believed happened in Denver just so he can get his story straight. Rayford, really confident that no matter what goes down, he'll be safe. He has the mark on his forehead. He trusted God to protect him. And if God did not, then as the Apostle Paul put it, to die would be to quote-unquote gain. to me to live as Christ and to die as gain. Yep. Buck now goes into like a big dilemma because he's like, oh man, I just, I just killed a man. And he doesn't really know how to handle that. And they even say, hey, a lot of people after they, they kill people, they start feeling like really guilty. It wasn't your fault. It was self-defense. You didn't know your own power, Buck. They kind of string us along a little bit about did he kill him? Did he not? And Floyd makes a call to the ER in Denver and confirms that yes, he did kill him. Mm-hmm. I'm going to take a little bit of a detour here, buddy. Okay. Because I have a big old problem with a lot of what gets said in the first part of chapter 18. Okay. Ray's having another serious, sad Ray internal monologue. And he talks about how he would accept the consequences of his actions, i.e. killing the Antichrist or killing the servants of the Antichrist, as what he considered to be a holy war. And I just wrote, oh boy. Oh boy. Okay. Here we go. Buck is actually rocked with remorse, like you said. People are reassuring him. It, you know, they, they sort of start saying it was self-defense. You didn't know. And then the rhetoric changes. 
Okay. Because he's talking to Floyd and he's like, look, you can't kill a man with a punch, can you? And he's like, I don't know. And you find out that, yes, Buck drove the bones into the guy's skull, severed both his optic nerves, and then the guy's head hit the floor. Both of them could have killed him. One of them certainly did. And Floyd says something to Buck when Buck says, well, I have to turn myself in. I just committed a murder. And Floyd says, if you shot an enemy soldier in battle, would you turn yourself in? Oh, yeah, I didn't like that line either. I'm going to say something again, and I know I used the F word last time. This is fascist rhetoric, okay? Yeah. There is a historical precedent for something called fascist heroic emotion, or at least that's the way I've heard it described. Okay. I'm not going to get too deep into the historical details because I'm going to get some wrong, but the gist of it is in Nazi Germany, part of the culture within the Wehrmacht and within the SS was that a true soldier contacts their emotions. And it's not like a rage thing, like you have to be like a berserker and find the, the battle spirit in you or anything. It wasn't anything so kind of glazed and machismo. It was, it is okay to cry. It is okay to feel remorse. It is okay to contact those emotions that might even be seen as less masculine, mm -hmm. but remember that you are fighting a war and that the war is for our advancement and survival against the lesser yeah, or the enemy, that the infiltrator. And so what they're having but go through here, whether purposefully or not, and I'm going to leave that up to you guys. There is historical precedent in this with some fascist rhetoric. Exactly. That turning even an act of self-defense into an act of war and saying, no, 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 you need to let these feelings linger. You need to contact them. You need to let them be okay. Even though the characters aren't expressly saying that, the text is, and it's being said in the subtext. Is that making any sense at all? Yeah, I can I can definitely see that line of thinking. I mean, we're we're getting into crusade and holy war territory now. So like that kind of thinking is like lock and step with that level of thing. Like, okay, yeah, you can feel bad that you killed them, but always remember that they're agents of the devil. So you're doing the God's work here. You are the hand of God. You are the manifestation of the Holy Spirit sending you to end these people's lives. You might even say God wills it. Yeah. Deus Volt, buddy. Ugh. Yep, he says, how could he be expected to fight in this cosmic battle if he couldn't even kill the enemy? And I wrote, nope, 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 nope. Oh, God. And that really does go against what I was taught as a Christian. Like, even in my very right-wing, very evangelical sect, we were not taught that this was a holy war to be fought in flesh and blood with weapons and bullets and things like that. Not what I was taught in church, and it certainly wasn't what I was taught at home. Mm -hmm. Acts of violence against people, you're literally sending them to hell. And I actually wrote that in the text, like Buck feeling bad about killing this dude. Yeah, dude, you sent him straight to hell. Yeah. And I understand it's a little difficult to try to win a convert when they're trying to shoot at you. And yes, it was self-defense. That's something I can get on board with. But this take it two or three steps further into the heroic narrative. Uh-uh. You lost me. Not good. Right. Floyd kind of tries to salve the wound a little bit by basically saying, if you hadn't have fought back, you'd be dead. Patty would be in hell. You bought her some time. Yeah. Not good enough, man. I know what they're trying to do. They're trying to slap a Band-Aid on it, but it's still ugly. It's still gross. It's still bad. 
So Rayford and Mac get a call from the, the Dallas Tower asking him that they inform him when he was half an hour away from touchdown. They finally get into uh, Denver and Fortunato immediately is just like, hey, um, we got to we got to talk real quick that we find out that the oh, the security officer has just double checked the system and found a view of the imposter that was claiming to be Rayford Steele. And Rayford's like, oh no, they already know. So they try to make the claim that whoever the imposter was, was the one that was shooting down all of the people in the reception area. And they try to blame the killing of the receptionist on Buck, but they review the footage some more, Mac and Rayford like, no, that didn't happen. It was the guard that actually did it. Leon tries to get him with the, the disinformation and Mac and Ray throw it back at him, but Leon doesn't budge. He's sticking to the party line. The good news is they don't seem to have any evidence on Ray or Buck definitively because yeah. it's impossible to make out Buck's face. Yeah. For now. Yeah, for now. They at first suspect Rayford for having something to do with this, uh, rightfully so, because he did. But they, they oh, yeah, he totally did. Yeah, and they say that this is high treason and punishable by death. So Rayford has a little bit more, a little bit more threat that he might be be killed soon. And see, he can't pop back with you were already planning to kill me anyway, right? <laughs> we get another little, little bitty time skip. Buck stays in touch with Nikolai, keeps doing his job. So it seems like they're not going to come down on him, that they can't ID him. They don't know he was involved, or at least they can't prove it. So Buck's kind of in the clear. Ken has moved into the safe house, as has Dr. Charles, just to take care of Hattie. So Mm -hmm. a few weeks actually passed, kind of without incident. We're about to get to chapter 19 to kind of bring it on home. Gotcha. So we get a little bit more Leon stuff. We find out he's a deceiver almost on the level with Nikolai. Like he's one to watch this Leon fella. And he gets some more airtime in the next few books. So Ray's keeping up with his eavesdropping and he finds out that Leon is pulling all of the kings in, the former ambassadors, now basically kings over the world. And he wants to find out what they think of the inner workings of Enigma Babylon. Mm-hmm. How do you guys feel about Pontifex Maximus Peter II? They're really worried because the, the Enigma Babylon world faith is a little bit quasi-independent from the rest of global community. Like, Peter II has a little bit more autonomy with the global community than most other organizations that are under the global community umbrella have. To a man, every king expressed outrage over Matthew's machinations. Each considered him a threat. All the other kings are like, we do our share, we pay taxes, we're loyal to Carpathia with Matthews just take 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 and it's never enough so Matthews is not doesn't have a lot of favor with the rest of the kings he's getting a little too big for his britches well them chickens is coming home to roost now so Leon tells each of them if we were to take extreme action against the pontiff can we count on you and they're all like yeah oh man yeah absolutely So we get a little bit of an update on Nikolai. He's got missiles pointed into space. Yep, he is ready. And he's constantly live streaming Eli and Moisha. He's hate watching their stream. Oh, dude, I love this part. Sometimes he just drops his computer and screams, I want him dead. I want him dead. I want his family dead. 
dead. I want to burn his house to the ground and piss on the ashes. Yeah, so he he just discovers this website with the live feed, and he's just nonstop, like, carrying it around, like, oh, man, we're, we're going to get him. Just carrying this laptop through every single, like, room of New Babylon, and it's just, it's it's comical. I'm starting to get my wishes of the comical, like, super Acme villain that is Nikolai Carpathia. We're finally Oh, yeah, here. buddy. Eli and Moisha are basically talking to him now. Like, they're saying things like, woe to him who sits on the throne of the earth. He knows they're talking about him, and they say that they're going to turn all the water into blood. Oh, man. In Israel. Yeah. Uh, so we oh. close the chapter with Ray and Mac finally starting to go for their tiger's dive. They get the equipment, try a first dive. Mac gets snagged. Ray hits his tank and injures his head. So they have to kind of go back up and regroup. And that's going to take us into chapter 19. I know I said we were going to bring it on home with chapter 19. There are actually two chapters left. Yep. A lot happens. So it is lightning round time. Real quick, we get more information about Zion's bulletin board. It He's just like, he updates it every week. It's blowing up. Yeah, blowing up. So they call it the cyberspace congregation, which I, I thought was kind of funny. Very 90s. He warns them to stay away from trees and grass until the first trumpet judgment is passed. He says it's going to be the biggest news since the outbreak. And he's like, you know, sometimes the Bible is figurative, but he's like, don't take it figurative this time. When it says all the grass and one third of the trees will be scorched, I don't know what that could be symbolic for. So stay away from trees. That's going to be a thing that Cyan does sometimes where he goes, I don't know what this is symbolic for, so expect the worst. So they even dig up the grass around the safe house so that the safe house doesn't catch on fire. Oh my God. (laughs) Ray and Mac again, they dive back down and they finally find the tail of the plane. So they are getting closer and closer to their goal. Buck has a talk with Hattie and, you know, caring for her, witnessing to her, feeding her soup. And Hattie has her first step toward a conversion. Yeah, and she does something that I've seen as kind of semi-common where they're just like, oh, like, I want to convert, but I'm so bad that I can't. I've I've seen that a few times happen. I've never encountered that. And that's yeah, why I've I- seen that like a few times. Really? Yeah, that that's something that like, I guess it just comes from like, I don't know, very much a self-loathing thing. And even I guess to a degree, anytime that they have encountered the church, there has been that self-loathing element thrown at them that we've talked about before. I want Jesus, but he couldn't possibly want me. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And the reason why she's saying that is she's like, no, Buck, you don't understand. You don't know what I've done and what I've been party to. We're going to find out. Yeah. They keep on reassuring her that, hey, he saves everybody. We get back into Rayford section and they finally get into the plane and there's just bodies everywhere still in the seats they were blocked by a piece of debris so the fish haven't gotten to them so it's actually going to make it easy whatever they find in there to make those bodies recognizable exactly they kind of start going through body by body which is incredibly grisly back to carpathia he starts a tweet war oh no so pre-twitter we have a head of state of the whole world having a Twitter beef with Zion Ben Judah, basically trying to outdo his viewer count. It's not working, but it's surprisingly modern. I was like, wow, that's, we've seen so much backwards 90s tech previously. This is such a change. Right? So we find out where Hattie's guilt stems from. She blames herself for not letting Amanda get on the flight to Denver with her. If she'd been on that flight with me, she'd be okay. She's also guilty about Bruce Barnes. 
Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. She she had a lot of insider information about a lot of this stuff that she did not share. Specifically, Bruce Barnes, whatever illness that got unleashed, I believe, that was something that Carpathia did intentionally, right? Yes, Bruce was poisoned. So now we can put Bruce among the ranks of the martyrs officially. Mm-hmm. Contrary to what we had said in a previous episode, because he was poisoned and Hattie's fever is not going down and she is getting sicker and sicker. Floyd believes that Hattie has also been poisoned. Oh, wow. When Buck finds this out that Bruce was Nikolai's first victim of this poisoning, now Buck wants to murder Nikolai. So add another one to the list. Yep. We got our team of assassins being built, it seems. Yep. Now that is going to get us into chapter 20. So we are ready to close this book out and boy, a lot happens. Yeah. So they see the bodies and they're just bloated, horribly disfigured, gruesome detail spamming at us. And then finally, Rayford recognized the earrings, the necklace of the jacket of Amanda, and he just can't take his eyes from her because now he has that final nail in the coffin to confirm that Amanda White is dead. And Rayford uh, tries to commit suicide here? Yes. Ray is in agony. Like, it's really hard to read. He goes to the surface and just wails uncontrollably. Like, he is broken. Yeah, he takes out his regulator in the plane. Like, he takes out his breathing device. Like, nope, I'm done. Yeah, and Mac has to, like, drag him out of the water literally just so that Rayford doesn't die here. Rayford is just like, I can't face five more years without Amanda. Really heartbreaking stuff. And yeah, it was kind of hard to read. Like I was just like, oh man, like- uh, And then uh, he tries to throw himself back in the water. Like- Yeah, and Mac is like, oh no, you don't. Yeah, Mac goes, oh no, you don't. You're gonna have to take me with you if you're gonna kill yourself here. And as they sit on the bank, Ray just racked with sobs in the middle of the night. The night is lit up by a hailstorm of hail and fire. And we finally get to this judgment. (laughs) That's a trumpet. And then we cut to Zion. And the biggest quote of that little vignette is, you know what this is, do you not? Let's pull Hattie's bed away from the windows just in case. The angel of the first trumpet judgment is throwing hail and fire onto the earth. So we finally get into our doomsday section. I don't like this. Zion's enjoying this too much. Yeah, he is. He's just like, oh, man, I I, I read the book where this happens. It's so cool. Yeah, he's kind of nerding out over this. So the hail is mixed with fire. And if you guys have read Exodus or you've seen any movie like The Ten Commandments, that's what we're seeing here. It is a mix of hail and fire. It is one of the plagues on Egypt. I believe it's the eighth plague or the seventh plague. Mm-hmm. of the 10 and so hail and fire coming down from the sky burning up all the grass and a third of the trees ray and mac start to have a conversation ray is calming down he is freaking out because amanda did not have her mark they kind of go the back and forth with that and this this kind of brings me to a, a slight per, uh, prediction because like i like to like to do predictions here every once in a while uh, they go back and forth and be like well She didn't have the mark, but she also died during the earthquake, and that was before marks were manifested. However, you could also say if she doesn't have the mark, that means she went to hell. And based on how Nikolai's resurrection powers work, he can only bring people back from the dead that have gone to hell, if I am making this prediction right. So 
if just because Amanda is dead, if the evil arc goes into fruition, I feel like Nikolai Carpathia is going to bring Amanda back from the dead. That's just my prediction here. We'll see. Okay. <laughs> I will neither confirm nor deny that one. All right. Yeah, but that's just, that's my, uh, that's my wild out there. Yep. As they're sitting there, they, they climb into the chopper to avoid the hailstones and it somehow gets worse. Yeah. Uh, a few books ago when you're like, man, I wish instead of the 18 month time skip, they, uh, they focused on turning water to blood. Well, it starts raining blood. I take back my wish. <laughs> Yep, it starts raining blood, which is objectively cool. Sorry, it is. They move on, and everybody's watching the hail and the fire and the blood, and there's the line, there was no longer any ambiguity about the war. The world was taking sides. Now, you could end there, Mm -hmm. but they don't. They push it further. So Nikolai has suspended all travel due to the judgment. New Babylon has fully become the capital of the world. Hattie is not improving. So we have, it's not a time skip, but it's very small vignettes as we go through of sort of what's happening over a few weeks. Ray's hatred for Nikolai is growing. He says to himself, your day is coming and I hope it's God who lets me pull the trigger. Oh man. Dude, Ray is serious now, man. He is not having it. So trumpet number one, we go right into trumpet number two. Yeah, because there is a giant meteor hurtling towards the earth that is an estimate of no less than the mass of the entire Appalachian mountain that GC astronomers like are predicting. They're like, oh man, tidal waves are about to engulf coasts on both sides of the Atlantic for up to 50 miles. Coastal areas are being evacuated. All boats are going back to harbors or people are being plucked by their ships from helicopters. It's unknown how many people can even get to safety. And even and the uh, effect on marine life is about to be just astronomical. And per prophecy, it sinks one third of the ships, kills one third of the fish and poisons one third of the ocean water. The mountain is actually made of sulfur. (laughs) So they say originally that it's going to be chalk or some kind of like porous material. No, it's sulfur, which is gross. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's going to smell awful. They postpone the meeting in Israel for 10 weeks. The witnesses on the Temple Mount, in response to this, call out to God and allow it to rain. Because remember, it's not raining in Israel right now. Yeah. For only seven minutes. And then when seven minutes are up, all of the water dries up right after that. We go from trumpet number two right into trumpet number three. We are just stacking them up at the end of this book. With wormwood! Wormwood. Literally a comet made of rotten wood the same size as the first one. So the size of the Appalachian Mountain Range. Not a particular mountain because the Bible says a mountain. But they go, nah, this is the size of a mountain range hurtling toward the earth. So that is the falling star Wormwood. Nikolai's contingency plan to blow up this doesn't even work because right when before the missile's about to hit, Wormwood just splits itself like anyway. As the whole world watched, the flaming meteor, the Bible called Wormwood, split itself into billions of pieces before the missile arrived. So his defense mechanism didn't even matter. Oh my God. See, I thought they were going to be like, what? One man has meant for evil. God has turned to good. Like somehow Nikolai accidentally fulfilled a prophecy, but it's like, nope, it just splits. Yep. And so it splits and it falls on all of the fresh water, turning one third of it poisonous. The Bible says bitter, but that's something that when you look at the word bitter in the Bible, it often means poisonous, unsafe to drink. 
Yeah, we get a little Avengers moment where Zion speaks directly to Carpathia in his writing, and he just goes, Mr. Carpathia, we will be in Jerusalem as scheduled, with or without your approval, permission, or promise protection. And then he says again, the glory of the Lord will be our rear guard, which I just put cue Avengers music after that. (laughs) Yeah, like he is throwing down the gauntlet, openly challenging Nikolai, and if Nikolai does not comply, he's going to look weak. Yep. So as we close the book, Ray is still believing in Amanda. Mac was smart enough to save Amanda's laptop. The hard drive in the laptop is protected, but the files are encrypted. And Ray knows one day he's going to need to crack those files. And he says, lover or liar, wife or witch, he had to know. Come on, dude. (laughs) Wife or witch, get out of here. If we're going to get some witch characters, I mean, uh, the only way to redeem Amanda White in my eyes is she's got to do some black magic before the end of the series. You're going to get your black magic, Gav, I promise. It's coming. I cannot tell you who's going to be a part of it, but it's coming. I'm I'm ready. Don't read the guide. It's going to spoil it. Okay. So we end on a meeting between Ray and Nikolai. They face off in what can only be described as another p***ing contest. Ray is basically being like, why don't you go to Israel? Why don't we go? Let's go now. You want to <laughs> go? And Nikolai says, you're trying to bait me, Captain Steele. It won't work. He says that if the witnesses don't call off their black magic, they will answer to me. So he is so done with these guys. Like, he's been done with them for several books, but it's really starting to heat up. I will also say the appointed time is approaching. Ah, It's coming. We're going to get there. And he says to Ray, do you still believe that a man who raised someone from the dead could be the Antichrist? And of course, Ray throws it back in his face. And Ray manages to reverse psychology Nikolai into going to Israel to meet with the witnesses and to meet with Ben Judah. And the last line of the book, you want to take it? Rayford had nothing of the sort, but Carpathia heard what he wanted to hear. Thank you, Rayford said. Captain Steele, schedule that flight. The end. Woo! That was a marathon, boys. Yeah, we got through those last, like, 20 pages like that. Oh, my God. It's just so much happens. Like, yeah. it, is, it is kind of a tribulation force, but slightly better because they actually tell us what's happening. Mm-hmm. And it's not 18 months. It's just a few weeks. We get enough cool descriptions and weird stuff happening. I told you the weirdness was coming. We're, we're yeah. basically here now. There's a moment that happens in the next book that is what I'm just going to call the weirdness. And it's, <laughs> it's where I feel like we cross a threshold from which we cannot return in the next book. And I am so excited because it's the whole reason we decided to do this podcast. I'm, I'm ready. And it's going to happen in the very next book. But we have an off the record to do next week where we're going to dissect Soul Harvest, talk about how we felt, give it a rating. But uh, you about ready to call it on this one? Yeah, I am ready to put Soul Harvest to bed. All right. Thank you guys for joining us on this week's episode of I Survived the Rapture. I'm Shane Bazell. And I'm Gavin Russell. And until next time, don't take out your respirator in the bottom of the ocean. Like that, that's just not, that's not a good plan. Bye. Okay, that's our show. Please remember to subscribe and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. And uh, join the community on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all at Rapture Podcasts. Uh, you can email us at RapturePod at gmail.com, and we really want to hear from you. 
Thanks for listening. You and lead you astray.